Well, good morning. My name is Pastor Josh. Happy Mother's Day. I called the mother's mamas in the first service, and by the glare, that didn't work out. So I'm just going to call you mothers. Happy Mother's Day. And it's good to have you, and welcome to Cross Point Church. And what we believe at Cross Point Church is we believe that a good and faithful God, despite our own sinfulness and our own rebellion, sent his one and only son into the world to forgive us of our sins and to transform our lives. And as a church and as believers in that, he calls us then to go and represent him in the world. And he calls his church, his people, a church not built with human hands, but a church that he builds up as a people to be missionaries, to go and to tell the world that there is hope in darkness, that there is redemption in sin, that there is forgiveness for all sins and transformation. And we, as a church, both locally and internationally, we are a missionary church, and we have missionaries that serve us and serve our purposes. And we are so blessed today and so honored to have a couple that we just started to support, that we just came into partnership with and both in praying for them. And their names are Jennifer and Josiah Huber, and they're with Project Amazon. And so I want to have a conversation, so I'm going to invite Josiah to come on up here, and, uh, and we're, we're going to talk about uh, Project Amazon. So give him a warm cross point welcome. There's the mic there for you. Uh, we've done this one time before, so I think we can do it again, right? We'll work on it. <laughs> um, it is great to have you. You and Jennifer, and Jennifer's here. Jennifer, welcome. You're great. We're fired up. So, uh, but uh, you work with a ministry called Project Amazon, and uh, Project Amazon uh, also has kind of a, a nickname, or a, it's kind of a, a, a name that you call it, Paz, P-A-Z. Tell us a little bit about that, and a little bit about your ministry. Just give the, the, the folks a context for that. A brief overview. A bit brief overview, okay. if you can, <laughs> which well, I know you're like... Well, in Brazil, we preach for three, four, five hours straight. So, Amen. We got until I am in the wrong place, loved ones. <laughs> I, you need to hire me. Can okay. I come back with you? <laughs> yeah, not a problem. Uh, my grandparents moved to Brazil in 1955. My father was five years old. And so they were planting churches in Central and Southern Brazil. Right on. And that's where my dad grew up. He came back to the States, got married, finished college, went back to Brazil. And... Uh, they were working in central and southern Brazil. So in 1976, he felt called by God to go north to the Amazon Basin. Right on. So they went north. The Amazon Basin is about almost the size of the continental United States. So it's not like a small little area mm-hmm. to cover. It's a huge chunk of the world. Right. People call it the lungs of the world as well because it produced so much oxygen down there. There were so many trees that we had. <laughs> and uh, so they moved north, and they started a, a, their church. They're in the, in the living room of their home in a city that, uh, that was a terrible city. It was yeah. a very bad city. It was a, a gold mine city, basically. It was very close to the gold mines of Brazil. And uh, today, uh, the gold has pretty much run out. But the city was a very rough city. Uh, we woke up at night many times, gangs chasing each other up and down the roads, shooting each other. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, uh, and it started there. Uh, right, it's actually right in the middle of the Amazon basin, and it's grown a lot since then. Praise God! Right. My dad not died in '94, right? Uh, but uh, up until a point that he uh, was still alive, uh, we had grown to a little under 200 churches planted in the Amazon basin area, mm. and uh, this, the main church in town had between five and 600 
uh, people there in 94. Mm -hmm. But from 94 on, it's grown right. even more, praise God. The, the mm -hmm. church in town now uh, has, depending on if it's rainy season or not, rainy season people don't, because they don't have, have as many cars there, so it's harder to get to church. So uh, during the rainy season, we'll run about 58,000, and then in the dry season, about 64,000. But that's, that's grown from, from about... Uh, 40,000 only a few years ago. So, I mean, it's really growing a lot. That's amazing. Yeah, so, to God. give you all context, I mean, there's this Amazon River. This is not like the Mississippi River. I mean, this is like this massive area. You jump off boats, jump on four-wheel drives or whatever, but you go off into the jungle, plant churches, get pastors there, leaders, and then go and do the same thing. And what else do you do? So, so there's like 500 church plants through this ministry, right, in the heart of Brazil, um, and you and Jennifer, basically, you oversee a certain group of churches. Is that right? Yes. Like in the video we watched a couple of weeks ago, there's like 27 church plants. Right. You probably have now 29, I guess, in the first service. What was that? Yeah, we, had, uh, we just multiplied out our area. So now we had 29, and we raised up the supervisor to take over several, so around 21 now again. Mm -hmm. But uh, mm -hmm. that's, what, that's what our goal is, is to plant churches, raise up leaders who can take good care of those churches, supervise them, and then set them loose. To keep on doing the same thing, and but then keep on supervising. Of course. That's amazing. Now, uh, we were talking last night. We met, Sherry and I met you guys in the Downing uh, kitchen, and we were sitting there talking. We just talked to you briefly because you had drove like 14 hours. So about the last thing they wanted to see was my four girls and me in a small kitchen. Go, what are you doing? Uh, Beautiful but, 18. At <laughs> the 18, that's right. Uh, now, but, but y'all started talking just briefly about revival. I could just see that in your heart and in your eyes, I mean, that God is at work in the Amazonian adventure. That's what I always call it in my mind. Uh, and so what does revival look like in Brazil? I mean, what, how's, that, how's that manifested, I guess? The revival throughout church history, what we've always seen is God raises up someone, uh, a great man of God, and he anoints him, and he, he's, he, you see a lot of miracles happening and hundreds of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people getting saved. And then when that person passes away, usually that movement kind of dies out with them. Right. Or it becomes a stagnant church over right. centuries. We've seen Very that typical. In, in several different instances. Mm -hmm. But when my father passed away in 94, because our main focus is one-on-one -on -one discipleship, mm -hmm. is raising up a worker who will do God's work. Mm -hmm. Not only get someone saved, which is extremely important, mm -hmm. but to train that person to win and disciple others. Right on. So because that's be being the focus of our ministry, one-on-one -on -one discipleship. So when my father passed away, like I said, we only had four or 500 people at the time. But then from that point on, it has grown so much more because of one-on-one -on -one discipleship. So to answer your question... What does revival look like to us? It is seeing thousands and thousands of leaders, workers, being raised up to work in the harvest field. And our goal is by 2014 to have the whole city of Santarin uh, completely saved. Which is, yeah, that's yeah. just amazing what God has done and how he has been at work. Now, for us, I mean... You know, we're here in central Illinois, you know, we always like spread a joy, spread his joy in central Illinois. Doesn't that sound good? Anyways, uh, but we want to be missionaries. Our culture is being lost. It really is. I mean, and uh, the decline of Christianity in our cities and in our, in our culture is really lost. And we have a heart as a church and as a people to be missionaries. How, 
What can we learn from you? What would you tell us? A couple, give, give us pearls for being a missionary and to have a heart and to, and to sustain and to persevere with a heart for the lost and to be missionaries in our own culture. I would say that the heart behind a true missionary is nothing more, nothing less than a true, deep, intimate, intimate relationship with Jesus. Mm. Because you can't love Jesus and not love your neighbor. Right. That's impossible. So right. like for us in the Amazon Basin, we have a little over 25 million people that live in that region now. Mm -hmm. uh, more than 40,000 communities, and by far, most of them are still dying and going to hell. Mm. And uh, so, like, when we set goals for 2014 to win the whole city, to plant a total of 1,000 churches by then, 1,000, um, right. Uh, it's, it's one thing motivating, and that is to see, and this is a phrase I learned back in Bible college, and it drives me until now, is to win for the Lamb the reward of his suffering. Oh, man, that is a good word. That is a really good word. How can we pray for you? We're, we want to be partners, and we want to know you. And when we think about you, when we're walking through our living room, and we're prompted to pray for you and Jennifer, what, what, and what can we specifically be praying for you guys about? Our, there's always lots of requests. Yeah, right. A lot of daily challenges. And I, I don't use the word problem, by the way. I don't believe in problems. The only problem is someone who dies without Jesus because there's no turning back. Everything else go. is a challenge. But, so we have a lot of those. But our number one prayer request is for God to raise up more workers, laborers for his harvest field. We don't pray for the harvest field because Jesus already said it's ripe unto harvest. But you ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers. Mm -hmm. So whenever you pray for us, say just, Lord, send them more workers. Yeah, and you never know, God might send you. <laughs> Amen. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. Watch what God does. Uh, that's awesome. Before I pray for you, is there, I, and I didn't do this in first service, but is there a website that they can go to uh, where they can just keep, keep watching your ministry or Project Amazon, or what is it? What's the website? Yeah, the ministry is Project Amazon. You just go to projectamazon.org. Right on. And Easy you'll, enough. And you'll get there. Our personal website is, mm -hmm. our last name is Huber, okay? H-U-B-E-R. Yeah. So my name is Josiah. Her name is Jennifer. They both start with J's. You'll never forget our website again, okay? <laughs> because it's two of us. It's plural, okay? So yeah. it's J.J. Hubers. Hubers. Uh, J.J. Hubers.com. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, let me pray. Guys, join with me in prayer. Join your faith to their faith. Join your mission to their mission. Let's really take this on in prayer for them, and let's agree together for God to bless you guys. Lord, I just thank you so much for Josiah and Jennifer. They have been called by name uh, by you, and you have sent them specifically uh, to, to this place, to the to, uh, to this area, and I just pray that you'll bless them, bless their marriage and their home, and uh, bless their lives, and Lord, bless their worship of you. May their worship of you be sweet. May they continue to be filled by your spirit and love for you, because we know that that's the fuel of their ministry and their passion, so continue to do that, and Lord, we do ask in your name, we ask for workers to be raised up for the harvest. It's there. We know it's there. We know that it's, that it's ready to be taken for your glory, so we pray that you'll give them the workers to do exactly that. Lord, we pray for all the practical things, the medical assistance, the dental 
they'll work, the, the boats, and, the, and that they'll work good, and that the trucks that they need to get through the jungle, that those will work good. Lord, all the practical things. Let no practical thing get in the way of this awesome mission of churches being planted. We pray that every person would be saved in that city. We pray that a thousand church plants would happen. And Lord, we just pray that you'll multiply Josiah and Jennifer many-fold for your glory and for your son's mission. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 God bless you, brother. Mm-hmm. Well, it's great to have them, and um, I can't think of a better Mother's Day gift than to have Josiah and Jennifer here to encourage you mothers with uh, that. And now I want to open up the Bible and pick up where we left off, 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, let me read the text this morning um, as we're kind of getting focused here. Um, and if you're visiting this morning, we've been, as a church, going through the book of 1 Timothy. It's in the New Testament. Timothy was a young pastor, um, and, uh, and he was a pastor of a church in a city called Ephesus. And uh, 1 Timothy 3, and let me pick it up in verse 13 and read the text that I want to focus briefly on this morning. 1 Timothy 3, verse 13. He says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Now, one of the things that's a little disturbing and disheartening about the Christian gospel in the United States, in America in particular, in our culture, in our society, is that it is radically on the decline. The statistics show that the trajectory of the Christian gospel in our country is not going upward, it's going downward. In fact, it's not, even, not only going downward, it's spiraling out of control. There's a lot of megachurches in America, but still we're not keeping up with population. There's not a lot of dynamic uh, things happening with new people becoming Christians. What that means, mothers, is that your role has become vitally important. Not that mothers' roles hasn't always been vitally important, but you are mothering in a very difficult time. Statistics show that if the trend continues, most of our children will leave the church. When they leave our home, they're going to leave the church. When they leave our home, they're going to leave the faith if the current trend continues. Now, you asked, you asked me, well, what are the reasons for this? And I read an article, in fact, this this last week, a blog by Timothy Keller. It's a review about a book. And he gave five 
suggestions of why the decline of Christianity has happened in our country. And I want to give those to you really quick. Five really quick reasons for the decline in America of Christianity. Number one reason in the last 50 years, 100 years, is the political polarization that's happened. And what's happened is there's a two-party system politically. As human beings, we believe emphatically in the, in the political process, sometimes too much. It becomes an idol or a god. But what happened is the churches got sucked into the vortex of the political polarization that's happened in our country. And many people outside of the church look at Christianity in America and look, especially at the evangelical church, and they say it's a pawn of the political process. It's only another little element of the political polarization and conversation that's happening. So they don't associate the church and the gospel and Christianity with the coming kingdom of God or Jesus dying on the cross or the resurrection. They associate it either with Democrat, Democrat uh, Party politics or Republican Party politics. And so the church and Christianity is a pawn. That's number one reason. Number two reason for the decline of Christianity in America is the sexual revolution. Back in the 60s, the sexual revolution and, and the conversation about appropriate sexual behavior began to change radically. It began to change radically. And where Christians have always said for 2,000 years of history that sexual activity is between one man and one woman in the context of marriage... What happened is, is that the sexual revolution reversed that and made that view, the Christian view, seem perverse, whereas the other views were not perverse. And so what happened to unchurched people, people who aren't Christians, is they looked at the whole Christian message and they said, well, because of their sexual ethics of one man, one woman, in the context of marriage, the rest of their message, the rest of their good news is implausible because it's obvious that they are perverted in their mentality. And so that's what the sexual revolution did. So a whole generation of people say, I'm not going to church. Are you kidding? Those people say that sex is between a man and a woman. You can't have sex until you get married. It's ridiculous. It's implausible. Number three, third reason for the decline of Christianity in America is globalization. The world is radically globalized. 92% of humanity lives in major cities or in the cities around the world. 92% of humanity And those cities have a globalized focus and worldview. New York City is, and London and Tokyo are more similar to each other than they are to the residents of their own country. All right? And so what happens is, is they, a globalized worldview says, hey, we're all together. It's kind of like you get all these people in a room. Imagine people from every religion in the same room, and they're all sitting and they're looking at each other, and one guy steps up into that room and says, Jesus is the only way to God. And you got all the other religions in that little room, right? And they go, that guy is an idiot. Because here we all are, and that's a globalized world. Globalized, it makes uh, Christianity seem repressive, seem archaic, and so it's a globalized world, and so Christianity's been on the decline. Number four, materialism, or you could put down consumerism. 
has led to the decline. This is what happens to the church. Every time in church history that Christians get rich or wealthy or have money, it always leads to the compromising or the watering down or the lukewarmness of the faith of Christians who are prospering, who are consumers of products, who are taking in money, and the church takes in money, and they take in power. And what ultimately happens is that usually in church history, it leads to a lukewarm approach to God and to Jesus and to absolute truth, you begin to water it down. Remember what Jesus said to the church in Laodicea in the book of Revelation. He said, you think you're rich, but really you're poor. You think you've got it all, but you've got nothing. You're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. And Jesus says to that church, I gag. I I put you in my mouth, and that lukewarmness causes me to gag. Your casual approach to truth, your casual approach to God, it it just makes me want to throw up. I want to just spit you out. And that church in Laodicea in the book of Revelation, beloved, I'm telling you, that church is us here in America. It is Christians in America, no doubt about it. Materialism, consumerism, and when we get watered down, we have nothing to offer that's unique or holy or different or uncommon or set apart. Number five, final thing, alienation. Christian leaders or intellectual Christians have the gatekeepers of culture and the, and the theme and the mediums of cultural ideas, entertainment, art, law, bioethics, all of these areas, the academy, all of these areas, the gatekeepers to these cultural mediums where, where, where information is spread, those gatekeepers keep the Christians out because of the fact of the other reasons that we just outlined. Sexually, they're bigots. They're perverted, those Christians. They're evil, those Christians. We're not going to allow them into our academy or allow them to influence. And, of course, the church is partly to blame for this, too, because what we've said as Christians in our cultures, we said, oh, those are the bad people. We don't, want, we don't want our people. We don't want our kids to live in Chicago, God forbid. We don't want our kids to live in New York City. We don't want our kids to live in L.A. In fact, we don't want to live in L.A. That's the bad place. It's the other. It's them versus us. We're going to stay over here and isolate ourselves, and we tell our sons and our daughters, don't go to the city. Don't be a lawyer. Don't be a, don't don't be a, a, a well t- tell your kids not to be a lawyer. But anyways, I, that's a joke. My kids, my dad's a lawyer, so lawyers, it's cool. I love you. Are we good? Don't be an artist. Don't be an actor or an actress. Stay away from them. So as opposed to us sending our kids and raising them up with a Christian worldview, people who love Jesus and absolute truth but still have compassion for people, and we say, go to Chicago, be an influence, be salt of the earth, be light of the world, go there and represent Jesus, we say, no, let's stay away. Let's get our canned food and our bullets and find a mountain somewhere and wait for the second coming of Jesus to come. Maybe he'll come in our lifetime. Lord Jesus, come. And and we're alienated. And so then we can't have influence and then we can't change culture. (laughs) Those five reasons have led to the implausibility, really the radical implausibility of the Christian gospel for many of the people in our country now. This is happening as recent as this last week. Culture is just constantly moving away. 
And you, if you're going to continue to follow Jesus, and if your children are going to continue to follow Jesus, you're going to find yourself more and more discriminated against in such a culture, in such a time as this. You're like, well, happy Mother's Day to you, Pastor. (laughs) My goodness. It's Mother's Day, and the man, I mean, at least he's wearing a bright shirt. At least he's got the little green thing going. But I have encouraging, (laughs) you might not believe this, I have encouraging news for you. And my encouraging news is this. We are closer to the time of the Roman Empire than we've ever been as Christians. In fact, the cradle by which the gospel, the absolute gospel of Jesus, as the absolute way to God, the cradle by which it was born and revival happened was the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was exactly like our culture is today. Illicitly, it was sexually illicit. It was, it was a globalized world with the Roman roads. It had the Koine Greek, which un- united the language and all of the people. It had all of the same principles that scare us today are the very things that were working in the Roman Empire. And Christianity somehow in that cradle, impossibly, it spread like wildfire throughout the Roman Empire. And the church was born in this environment. We as Christians, we're closer to the book of Acts than we've ever been before in our country. We're closer to 1 Timothy than we've ever been before. And that means that something radical, a revival could happen, uh, something radical like what happened in the first church. God loves working through small things and small people and and impossible situations. Did y'all know that? He's more glorified when he works through something that's impossible than he is when he works through something that's, of course, natural. It's like Mary. Remember, Gabriel comes to Mary and says, you're going to give birth to the Son of God. And she said, how's that going to be? I'm a virgin. And Gabriel says to her, nothing is impossible for God. In fact, all the major movements that God's ever done in the world has happened through little means. Think about Moses, the stuttering murderer. God, I can't even talk for a sentence without going, uh, 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 uh. Think about Gideon in the book of Judges or Abraham, the pagan who worshipped many gods. And God took him out of there, took him to the land of Canaan to start this new people, this nation of Israel. Think about Sarah, whose whose womb was unable to produce a a baby, and she was an old lady, and God put Isaac in there and gave birth to a nation miraculously out of nothing. Little is much when God is in it. Amen? That is a good place for an amen. I didn't even say that the first service. That was extra. This is not time for us to duck our head and to go, oh, no. This is our time to say, man, this is such a time like this. This is, this is how God works. It's like Psalm 112 says, one of my favorite psalms, where it says that the righteous man is unafraid of bad news. For one day he knows he will stand above his adversaries. He knows that God will be vindicated in this world. 
The question is not what if. Oh, what if we wouldn't have jacked it up as a country? Oh, what if the sexual revolution would... Oh, what if we would have never had hippies? The issue is not what if. The issue is what now? How now shall we live? Is the question. <laughs> you ask me, why are we going through the book of 1 Timothy? Why, why, why are we studying through the verse by verse? We're taking all this time. You're taking forever to get through the book, Pastor. Why? And because Paul was writing to a man who was living in a time such as this. And he was telling this pastor in a very frightening culture, in a dark time in Ephesus, where there's a temple to Artemis, where people would go and worship this goddess. In a city where prostitution was free and was considered religious and spiritual. And Paul tells Timothy, this is the way you do church in a time such as this. What we have in 1 Timothy is a prescription for how to live in a globalized, in a sexual Sexually different time in a globalized, in a political, polarized time, in a materialistic time, in an alienated time. This is how you do church. This is how you do it in such a way to where people are, go from ungodly to godly. They go from not transformed to transformed. This is the way you do it. And I find that First Timothy chapter 3 in particular is a secret antidote. It gives us three things. It gives us three ways to live as a church and as believers in a time such as this. Are you surprised it's three ways? Three ways. 1 Timothy chapter 3 tells us that the church in a time such as this needs good, godly leaders. That's a good place for an amen. The church needs good, godly leaders. Amen. Amen. Secondly, 1 Timothy 3 tells us that you need the good news of Jesus Christ. An emphatic emphasis on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the third thing it says is that the church needs an emphasis on the good mission of Jesus. Good leaders, the good news, and the good mission. Let me talk under, first of all, Good leaders. We've been talking about good leaders. We've talked about elders, and we uh, ended our journey with leadership last week on the deacons. Let me read to you from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. These are the kind of servants we need in the church in a time such as this. 1 Timothy 3, verse 8. It says, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Many argue, and I agree with them in verse 11, that that word for wives in the Greek, it could be wives or it could be women. They're women like deaconess. And I agree with most interpreters that that should be in our English Bibles, they're women or women deacons or deaconesses. Likewise must be dignified. 
not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife. And we talked about that with elders, right? You all know what that is. That's not talking about polygamy. That's saying that deacons, either men or women, should have eyes only for their spouse. So these leaders in the church can't be flirtation can't be flirtatious, can't have uh, a staring driven life, can't be looking second and three times at women who are not their wives. They can't be on the computer looking at images that are not appropriate. They have to have eyes only for their spouse. They have to be faithful. A lot of men married to one woman, but they don't have a one-woman lifestyle. Deacons have to. They must manage their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, you will note that the difference between the qualifications for elders and deacons is very, very few. In fact, it's almost, it's almost exactly the same list as, you, as we read about and studied with elders. It proves that the quality of a church is greatly dependent upon the character of its leaders. But the differences are these, that deacons are not teachers of doctrine. Remember, elders are able to teach, able to preach. They're concerned about doctrine and doing what I'm doing right now, which is breaking it down and sometimes boring you and sometimes thrilling you and... Most of the times leading you to think I'm the greatest preacher ever. But outside of that, (laughs) deacons, however, don't do the teaching and the preaching and don't have ultimate authority. There's only one office of leadership in the church, and that is elders. Churches should be elder-led. They shouldn't be member-led or deacon-led or this board-led. It should be elder-led. But deacons are the assistants to the elders. Elders care for the church, we learned in their list. And deacons are their assistants. The church is not to be set up like the U.S. Constitution. That's poppycock and balderdash. Did I just do that again? That's the second week in a row. The church should be set up like a restaurant. There's a chef, and that chef is Jesus, and there's waiters, and those waiters take what Jesus has cooked up, the bread of life, amen, and they bring it out to the people who are waiting to be fed on Jesus, and then there's bus boys and bus girls who take care of the cleanup and who serve the waiters and the elders, and everybody humbly in a servant-like way is serving the same kingdom or restaurant. That's the way it should be organized and the way it should be governed. Elders are the leaders. Deacons are their assistants. And a great picture, I gave you a picture last week of the Good Samaritan and elders. Let me give you a picture of the deacons this week from the Bible. Go to John chapter 2. And we're under the heading, Good Leaders, right? How now shall we live as a church? And how can we make sure our kids don't leave the church? We need good leaders and a good leadership structure. That's why I'm laboring to tell you about these things. John chapter 2. And we get a picture of deacons here in Jesus' first miracle. Look at John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day. Now, good things happen on the third day with Jesus. Amen. 
there was a wedding at, the Can- at Cana in Galilee, a little bodunk town, you know what I mean? A little hillbilly hicks there, kind of like Oklahoma there. And the mother of Jesus was there. That's positive. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, that's not a good thing, amen? We want plenty of wine at those weddings. All my Baptist people were like, what? When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to them, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, happy Mother's Day. Jesus said to her, woman, (laughs) woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And, of course, the hour in the Gospel of John, the finest hour, the ultimate hour is when, when Jesus died on the cross for our sins. John develops that. Jesus keeps saying in the Gospel of John, he's like walking along, you know, the Lake Galilee. He's like, my hour has not yet come. And then later on, you know, he's like, my hour has not yet come. And then right at the end, right before he goes to die on the cross, he says, my hour has come. He's telling Mary, who's misunderstanding his mission, he's telling her, this is not my hour. This is not my ultimate thing that I'm doing here. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants. Everybody say servants. All right, everybody tell me what the Greek word is for servants there. Deacon, that's right. The mother said to the deacons. Do whatever he tells you. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, said to the deacons, so Jesus is talking to the deacons now. He says to the deacons, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants, the deacons, who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. He goes on to say, he's like, you know, most people, they bring out, you know, the good beer first, and then they bring out the beast. No Milwaukee's best. Right? (laughs) Don't ask me how I know that because I'm not going to tell you. Right? But he says, but you've brought out the good stuff, and this is like the best stuff in the world. So Jesus turns water into wine, and the best quality of wine, the most aged of wine, the wine as if it were 200 years old vintage wine. It's in a moment from water to wine in a moment. Now listen. Those, those little jars, those little pots for Jewish rites of purification stood for the law of God. And what Jesus was symbolizing through a physical miracle, a real miracle, what he was symbolizing was that he is the fulfillment of the law. He is the good news. He is the gospel. He came to be obedient on our behalf so that we could be righteous with God. And by faith in him, he fulfills the law in our place. Amen? Now, but these deacons, they physically serve the needs of the body for people, like real physical needs, so that the spiritual message can be received by people. Does that make sense? And that's what deacons do. Deacons are assistants to elders. They serve the physical needs of people so that the spiritual message can be delivered and received by people. So ultimately, deacons have to care more about the spiritual message than they do the physical needs of people in the church. But they serve the physical needs 
of the church. And the Bible, last week we looked at elders and the Bible was very specific about what elders do. The Bible's like, this is what elders do. Boom, 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 boom. Very specific. But with deacons, the Bible doesn't do that. We get very little information on the details of what deacons should be doing. And the reason why is because all of the physical needs of a local church are different from church to church. So Josiah and Jennifer, their churches in the Amazon have different practical needs than we do in central Illinois. Isn't that right? I mean, you guys got like building stuff that's different and sicknesses that are different. I mean, everything is different practically than it is here. And so the reason why it's, it's open on what deacons should, should do is because elders have to decide in each unique church situation how these deacons can serve the practical needs of the church. It's actually pretty stunning and awesome the way it's worked out. But that picture, it's a great picture of deacons there in John chapter 2. Good leadership. Good leadership. You've got to have elders caring for the church, and you've got to have deacons helping them out. And as a church, we have to raise up. We have to train men to be elders, and we have to train men and women to be deacons. We know men and women are deacons because of Romans chapter 16, verse 1, where Phoebe is a deacon, deaconess. It's important. You know what? I want you all to know, everybody here, most people at Cross Point Church, what I've noticed, not everybody, but most, most of you, you come from other churches. Most of you come from other churches. This whole church was planted from another church. And we start to ask ourselves, why is that? Why is it that this church kind of came out of another church and not like in a good way? Like it, there was conflict there, and I wasn't there. It was years ago, so I, I have no idea. So I don't know whether they call you the good guys or them. I don't know what happened. But there's stuff happened. Amen? And, and this church was planted, and then, and then some of you have left other churches. And why have you left churches, or why did you get burned by the church? And the reason why you got burned is because of bad leadership, Right? And what happens when we get hurt by the church and by bad leadership is we begin to wonder whether good leadership is even possible. And in our culture, leaders are corrupt, true or false. We're just not used to good leaders. We hunger for them. We want good leaders. We, We hope for good leaders. But really, at the end of the day, we doubt whether it could ever happen. And so what we begin to do is we come to a little church and we go, man, I just hope it Hope nothing big happens here. I hope, I hope it just kind of stays, you know, kind of status quo and small. And, like, I hope that, like, I hope that we can just kind of, you know, just kind of get along and play not to lose. And I just, I just hope there's enough structure so that there's enough accountability so that not too many people, you know, nobody needs to have power or, or real leadership. We just need to spread it out so that everybody's taken care of. And that way I won't get hurt again. I don't want to get hurt again. We get outwitted by Satan. We overreact to a bad situation in our own lives. And we begin to fall away from dynamic, elder-led leadership. And we fall away from assistance helping the elders to fulfill the mission of Jesus in the world. And we've got to believe in this passage. Especially in a time such as this. Especially now. We can't settle for second best so-so leadership. We have to have dynamic, good leaders who are humble, love Jesus. They've been converted. They've been tested. They love their families. 
Their wives like them. Good leaders. Second thing that we have to do, how now shall we live in a time such as this? We need good leaders, but then we need the good news. We need to remember the good news, the gospel. We've got to keep the gospel central to our affections and our hopes and our dreams. Our hopes. We have nothing to negotiate with this world, man. What do you got to negotiate with this world? What's this world going to give you? Not a dadgum thing. You're, you know, at best, if we have our health completely, at best, what's the Bible say? Lord, teach us to number our days so that we might gain wisdom. And at best, we'll live to be 85, 95, 98. Let's say you live to be 110. What is that in comparison with eternity? What's this world got to give you in that 110 years that's such good news? This world is dying. I'll tell you what my mother taught me. My mother's the first theologian in my life. Amen? Mothers, y'all are great theologians. My mom used to look at me when I was a little boy, you know, and I'd, I'd sin or do something stupid, which was infrequent. <laughs> she'd look at me and she'd say, Joshy? And nobody else can call me Joshy, by the way. <laughs> Only you can think, don't be, don't be doing that Pastor Joshy stuff to me. She'd say, Joshy? Adam and Eve jacked it up, didn't they? And I was like, yeah, mommy. You know, theology. Adam and Eve jacked it up. And ever since Adam and Eve jacked it up in original sin, this world has been ripe for judgment. And the only reason it hasn't been judged is because Jesus is going to bring a new heavens and a new earth. And the reason why he's patient with us because he wants everybody to get saved and to come to faith and knowledge in him. But there is nothing to negotiate with this world. There is nothing. Not popularity, not money, not stuff, not things, not health, nada, nothing. That's what Winston Churchill said to Hitler. I have nothing to negotiate with that man. I did that really bad. But anyways, <laughs> what we have is not good news from the world, but good news from Jesus. And we have to believe emphatically in the good news. Look at verse 14. It says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay... You may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. I hate that my translation says buttress. How many of y'all got a translation that says foundation? Right, y'all, it's better there in that verse than mine. That's good. Foundation of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Underline that. Mystery of godliness. What is the mystery of godliness? He, everybody say he. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's a hymn right there. Where it says he and onward, that's a hymn. In fact, symmetrically, it's perfect. If you have OCD, that is a beautiful passage. That worked better in the first service. All right. But it says the mystery of godliness. Now, there's where the gospel is. The mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness. God said 
through a covenant of works. If man or woman is going to make it into the kingdom of God, they must be godly. They must be righteous. They must be perfect or else they will burn up in the atmosphere of the kingdom of God. You'll burn up without perfection. You will burn up without godliness. And who among us is godly? Who among us is righteous? Who among us is perfect? Are we or are we not a church filled with jacked up sinners? We're broken. We're not godly. And so all of human history is how can I be godly? How, how is this possible? It's, it's too much. It's a mystery. But the mystery is solved and the mystery is solved in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This mystery of godliness has been solved in who he is. He was manifested in the flesh. Manifested in the flesh, that points to his pre-existence before he was manifested in the flesh. He is the eternal son of God, this Jesus. He is God who came and became and was manifested in the flesh. You could write incarnation there. God became a human being. He was vindicated by the Spirit. That's talking about the death and resurrection because we know, in fact, we know from Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 and starting in verse 3 it says, Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He was declared, he was vindicated by the Holy Spirit in his resurrection. That means he died for our sins. He's vindicated in the payment he paid for us by his resurrection in the strength of the Holy Spirit. He was seen by angels. That means after he died and he rose again, the good news is that he ascended to the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 3 and 4, he ascended. He sat down at the right hand of of God. And you can get a beautiful picture of the worship of Jesus by angels in Revelation chapter 5 where myriads upon myriads of angels fall down and say, Worthy are you, Lord. Worthy is the Lamb who takes away our sin. Angels worshiping Him. But not only is He vindicated by the Spirit, and angels know that Jesus is what He said He was, but He is vindicated through the preaching among the nations. This is the good news. Jesus came, He died, He was buried, He rose again, He ascended, and He's preached. And there's a contrast between angels see that that's true, but also everybody who believes the preaching of the gospel, they see that it's true. It's all confirmation of the good news of the person and the work of Jesus. He was believed on in the world, and he was taken up in glory. That ascension is a foretaste of our own ascension, of our own going to be with him in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the good news. It's the mystery of godliness. You know, some of you, you you and I, you and I cannot do righteousness in our own strength. We have nothing to offer to God. Everybody say nothing. That's how much you have to offer to God. You come to God with an empty hand. Did you know that? 
There's no godliness on your own that you can do. There's no righteousness. And the gospel is not what you do. It's what Jesus has done. And man, people, especially in America, because we're the can-do people, we get things done on our own. We got our self-help section at Barnes & Noble. We got the 10 ways to be happy. We got, the, we got the 12 ways to be a man. We got the 15 ways to be a woman. But when it comes to God, there is nothing we can do. The good news is not about what we can do. The good news is about what Jesus does. And he came into this world. He took our sin. He fulfilled the law in our place. And he comes to us. And he doesn't appeal to our will first. He doesn't appeal to our emotions first. He doesn't appeal to our intellectual life first. He appeals to our heart. He says, I want to come into your heart. I want to change your heart. I want to produce a godliness that is the result of the knowledge of God in the face of the Son of God and knowing him and dying in him. That transforms me from the inside out. Christianity is not an outside-in religion. It's an inside-out religion. It comes in us and it changes us and it causes us to be born again. Jesus does this in our life and he produces godliness that's natural. See, the way I like to say is there's good, good works and there's bad, good works. Bad, good works is good works that we do in our own strength and they're mixed motives and they're forced and it's contrived and it causes us to be, to have a sense of superiority over other people produces arrogance and pride because we can get it done on our own strength. We look down on other people who can't get it done. We become arrogant in the church. It creates poison in the church because it's self-righteousness. And that's bad, good works. And maybe outwardly you're moral. Maybe outwardly you got your life together. Maybe outwardly you can pay all your bills. You got that great job. But if you are proud, ultimately you have a sense of superiority over other people and self-righteousness. And when it comes to God, there's a part of you. There's a part of all of us. We look at God and we go, you know, you really should like me. You should like me. Come on. Look at this fashion. It's bad, good works. Good, good works is when we're, we're bent by our sin and we surrender. And it's Christ and all of Christ that comes in us. And he works in us and through us. And the life of Christ and the knowledge of Christ produces transformation, which gives us confidence because we know we're right with God. But it gives us humility with other people because we know that we don't deserve to be right with God. He earned it. That's the good news. He earned it. You want to know why churches are so biting and hypocritical and self-righteous and sometimes unsafe places to go? Because it produces a good news that's, that's, that's in the strength of human beings. But the good news that saves and the good news that produces a transformational church is all of Jesus. That hymn has nothing to do with me. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. Angels aren't worshiping me, and they won't worship you. He was proclaimed among the nations. He was believed on in the world. He was taken up into heaven. Man, Jesus did it all. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And man, the more you believe that and walk in that and you're humbled by that, the more confident you'll be in a serving way, in a loving way. Josiah said it. How can I be a missionary? Worship Jesus. 
You will commend to other people what you cherish. Cherish Christ. Cherish the good news of his forgiveness. Cherish his person. I was playing golf the other day. I know. I went by myself. And, uh, you know, I, love, I like going to play by myself because I usually get to play with somebody I don't know, a stranger. So it's my opportunity to finally meet somebody outside the church. And I was talking to a guy and... Of course, you know, he's like, what do you do after he cussed after the first four bad shots he hit? <laughs> beep, beep, beep. And then he was like, what do you do? <laughs> I'm like, well, you know, and by that time, I just get sold on being bold. I, I just like go all out on my title. I'm like, I am a pastor and a preacher of the good news of Jesus Christ. You know what I mean? Like, I just, just like all out, all in. You know, and he's like, oh, man, I'm really sorry about the bad words, man. I really didn't mean to do that. And I'm like, dude, lightning ain't going to strike me, bro. I mean, <laughs> it's good. Because I've been very patient with my bad shots. <laughs> but he asked me. He said to me. He's like, you know, I was born and raised in the Catholic Church. I haven't been to church for years. What is it that you believe? What's different about you than all the other churches? And, of course, I'm like doing a Tiger Woods. I'm like, <laughs> actually, I was doing a Tebow. I was like, yeah. You know what I mean? And I was like, dude, I'll tell you what's different. What we believe is we believe this world is jacked up. And he said, what's jacked up mean? <laughs> And I was like, what that means is that it's messed up. And you and me were messed up dudes. But we believe that God came into this world as a human being to liberate us. He is greater than Moses. He's a savior. He's a liberator. And we believe that Jesus came and he died on a cross because we couldn't die for our own sins. And he rose again so that we could have new life. And we believe Christianity is not a building or a place or a set of rules. Christianity is a response to Jesus. I was like, do you believe that? And he was like, I don't know, but I, should I use a five iron or a six iron here? You know, I was like, <laughs> I invited him to church. I don't know if he's here. If you're here, dude, there you go. You just got put in a sermon. But anyways, this is the good news. We don't do it. He does. We don't live, we die. We die, he lives. Jesus. Well, finally, we need good leaders. We need the good news. And we need the good mission. I want you to look at two phrases as I close up here. I'm going to finish up. <laughs> Sherry told me now. Now, Sherry said to me, now, baby. Mamas are going to want to get to lunch on time today, all right? So, verse 15, it says, I want you to know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar. Everybody say pillar. A pillar and the foundation of truth. Later on, he says in the hymn that I just outlined for you that he was Proclaimed among the nations. When you take this 
into consideration along with 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And then chapter 2 and verse 3. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people. Everybody say all. All people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. And you combine those verses with the pillar. The church is the pillar of the truth. And that he is proclaimed among the nations. You find out that Paul is emphasizing the Timothy in Ephesus. In a pagan culture. You are to go out and be a pillar. To be a missionary. To be on mission reaching more people with the gospel of Jesus. In fact, this is what the church is about. It's a pillar. Now, when we think about pillar, what do we think? We think of those Greek columns, you know, that hold up a building. You know, pillars. That's what we think of. But really, that pillar is standing for, it's more like the pillar. Remember, remember Israel in the, in the desert? And they were led by the pillar of light at night. You remember that? And they were led in the night, the pillar of light, the pillar of fire. And the pillar of fire was this great, big, gigantic, neon sign like, follow me. This is it. So this pillar is talking about the church being that shining city on a hill. It's talking about the church being a light in a dark world. It's talking about the church being on mission for the sake of proclaiming his name among the nations. In conclusion, very simply, you've heard me preach this so many times, it's, I'm sure it's painful for you, but it's so important. Our mentality cannot be that we come to church. Our mentality has to be we go from the church. The, the, the church is not about our conveniences. It's not about coming and praying that God will give us a couch for a man cave. It's not about praying that, you know, I'll have a better week or a better month. I'm going to come to, I'm going to, come to church so things may, maybe will go better for me. We come to church to be equipped to be missionaries to our culture, to go out and to reach and to multiply Reach more people. We don't come to church. We go to church. The mission is not community. The community of the church exists for mission. We're a pillar. It's not about you and me. So when we, so when we say things like, man, I hope we stay small because I just want to know everybody's name. The goal is not to know everybody's name in church. The goal is to know somebody's name in community and then to go reach more people who God puts into your life. Does that make sense? Are you all tracking with me? It's dynamic, see? And when the church is kind of like we're going to sit on our, on our canned food and our bullets and we're going to sit on the side of the hill and wait for the second coming of Jesus because it's such a nasty, bad world. Dude, we are leaving the mission of the church. We're to go where it's dirty. I want your sons and your daughters to love Jesus and to go live in Chicago. I want them to go to New York City. I want them to go. I want us to go. I want us to be scattered and so that we can go. I want to, I want to plant churches. I want to see people come to know Jesus. I want to, I want to see mission happen. 
And as mission happens, we're going to love Jesus. And when I'm sick, I'll still have joy because I'll have Jesus and what he's doing in people's lives. And when, when I can't meet my bills or I don't have a big enough savings account, that's okay. I'll still be happy because I'll see Jesus at work in people's lives. When, when things aren't going my way or when I'm confused about my purpose, that's okay because I'll know Jesus is still working on me to be his ambassador in this world. You'll never be without a job with Jesus. You'll never be without significance or the possibility of significance with Jesus. You'll never be outside of a mission or a plan without, with Jesus in your life. But without him, it's hit or miss, man. Hit or miss. Mission. How now shall we live in a politically polarized time, in a sexually illicit time, in a globalized time, in a materialistic consumer-oriented time, in an alienated time. How now shall we live? We shall live as a church with good leaders, with the good news, and with the good mission that Jesus gives to us. Let's pray. God, you are good and awesome and powerful, and every single one of us who believes here today is a miracle of your grace. We were dead in our sins. We were without hope. Godliness was a mystery unsolved in our life, but you came and you saved us, and now you call us to be on mission and to hold on to the good news and and, and to believe that good leadership is possible and, and in some cases to be leaders ourselves, to be servant leaders in the church, to make sure that it's sticking with the good news and the good mission. God, we thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that you've given us examples of how you've worked in impossible times before. We are not without hope. We thank you that just like Psalm 112 says, that in the face of bad news, we are unafraid. We give you our fears. We give you our anxieties. We ask that you would replace it with faith where we are fearful. And we pray for our young ones. We pray for our young sons and daughters that you would work in them regeneration and a calling and a purpose in their life, that you would send them into this world representing and being a pillar of light and darkness. Use our church. Work in us Holy Spirit, have your way in all of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.